Welcome to a special episode of our Sustainable Finance Market Insights podcast. I'm Aditi, the host of Sustainalytics Sustainable Finance Solutions usual podcast, which is a monthly roundup on sustainable finance news, transactions, and regulatory updates. Now, this is a special podcast today where in addition to our monthly roundup, we've decided to spice things up a little bit and add a special podcast which is about sustainable finance for the metals, commodities and the mining sector. For today's episode, I've decided to call on my colleagues from across APAC. So we have Nishant joining us from India, Nick, who you're already familiar with, joining in from Singapore and Vanessa from Hong Kong. So a couple of new voices there. Welcome team. I hope you all brought your crystal ball to predict the future of sustainable finance for the metals, commodities and mining sector. So let's start with the introductions. Nishant, if you can go first, followed by Nick and then Vanessa. Thanks, Aditi. And uh, very excited to be a part of this special podcast on metal and mining. And for all our listeners, hello, everyone. I'm Nishant and I'm part of the Sustainalytics APAC sales team. And my role is to provide uh, support on technical solutions on the opinions side of the business. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with my voice, with the Aussie twang that I'll be adding to the discussion today. And I run our solutions business for APAC and do the monthly podcast. So it's really good to be doing this format. We'll see if we can uncover a few of the interesting aspects of metals and commodities in mining. So looking forward to the discussion and super happy that we've got a few new voices on the podcast today. So thank you, Aditi. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be doing this podcast with the team. So definitely a tick off for my bucket list. So so thank you, Nick and Aditi. So hi, everyone, and to our podcast um, listeners. Uh, This is Vanessa, and I look after the ASEAN market for Sustainalytics, and I primarily work with our banking partners in the region for our opinion solutions, and I'm based out in Hong Kong. So looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for the introductions, team. Let's get to it. So for today's episode, we will cover and structure the episode as follows with various topics, which include what is Sustainalytics approach to sustainable finance for metals, commodities and mining sector? What we've seen in the market? What are the key considerations and topical issues in this regard? And then general comments on our outlook for sustainable finance for the metals, commodities and mining sector. Nick, let me start with you. Can you share with our listeners what is Sustainalytics' approach to sustainable finance in this area? Yeah, sure. It's amazing all the new voices from our office we get on the new podcast. Everyone sounds like our news readers. So I'll, I'll try and sound very prim and proper in some of my comments today. It's a good question to, to open up the discussion. And I'd say without getting too in deep and into too much detail, the approach we take to certain aspects of this is looking at and providing second-party opinions for linked transactions, use of proceeds transactions. So that's the primary area that uh, we're involved. But we also do a lot of ESG risk ratings for companies in these areas. And many companies are reaching out to us saying, hey, we'd like to get an ESG risk rating. We might want to connect it to a loan. We might want to connect it and use it in investor roadshows. So definitely second-party opinions, definitely ESG risk ratings. And then increasingly so, benchmarking work we're doing in these challenging type sectors and also impact style of report. So across all of the the key kind of things that that we do, we're really um, interacting with a lot more companies from this area. And I think it's indicative of where the market is heading. This is not meant to be a specific sales pitch for Sustainalytics. It just evidences that more mining companies, commodities companies, we need a lot of these things for the future, are coming to market. More investor scrutiny is on these challenge sectors 
So ESG risk ratings are a way to engage and work with investors. And then a lot of industries, certainly the ones that that have a big environmental and social footprint, come into us to do different aspects of work. So yeah, it's a bit of an entree, lots of different things we do throughout our business that really connect to some of the key drivers of, of what's happening or being demanded by companies in this sector across the market. Thanks, Nick. Look forward to hearing everyone's views during the course of this podcast on the key topics you've highlighted. So thanks for that. So Vanessa, let me come to you now. Why are we seeing growing interest from this sector? Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. We're definitely seeing growing interest from the mining sector in sustainable finance. And I think, you know, as, you know, in addition to what Nick kind of mentioned earlier, I think we can definitely draw upon, you know, three main observations or reasons. So the first reason being that um, obviously the mining sector has a size of footprint. It contributes around four to seven percent of the global greenhouse gas emissions in terms of scope one and two. And like other carbon intensive you know industries the sector is under pressure from various stakeholders like governments and investors to focus on ESG and to take more active and significant actions on tackling climate change so in response to this we are actually seeing more com- mining companies have set their long-term goals of, ach- of achieving net zero operational GHG emissions And the second reason being that there has been an increased scrutiny on the environmental and social related risks in mining. So apart from the contribution to the overall GHG emissions, the sector also presents some um, negative and adverse environmental challenges in terms of water and land use, its impact on biodiversity, deforestation, waste produced from the process, etc., Health and safety, together with you know human rights, are some of the social risks that uh, miners have been scrutinized on as well. So this could you know probably stem from some of the historical events that we have witnessed in the industry related to poor working conditions at mining sites. There were also evidence of of child or forced labor working at artisanal and small scale mines as well. So perhaps a way for these companies to access finance while demonstrating their efforts to address these environmental and social risks in their operations is via user proceeds or sustainability-linked instruments, like like Nick mentioned earlier. So to date, uh, we have actually seen more mining companies using ESG risk ratings as one of their KPIs in their sustainability-linked loans as well. My last point, which is that mining is also a key industry in transitioning to a low-carbon economy. So minerals are essential components in many of today's clean energy technologies, from solar panels, wind turbines, um, to electric vehicles, etc. So this is another reason why we see a surge of interest in, in sustainable finance from the mining sector as companies in the sector need capital to fund the increasing demand for minerals. So it's an interesting report that I've read by the IEA, the role of critical minerals in clean energy transition. The mineral demand for clean energy technologies would actually rise by at least four times by 2040 to meet climate goals and and particularly high growth for EV-related materials. Just to give you some stats to help you to put things into more context as well. So a report by the World Bank Group uh, minerals for climate action. It stated that the production of minerals like graphite, cobalt, lithium could rise by 
nearly 500% by 2050 to meet the growing demand um, for clean energy technologies. So these stats show how, you know, there are actually no real substitutes for, for minerals. And obviously the world's, you know, oldest industry is here to stay for a long time. And I, I came across this saying that if you can't grow it, you actually have to mine it. So meaning that anything we can't grow on the earth, we would have to extract it from the earth in one way or the other. So I guess the, the access to finance and capital, therefore, becomes an increasingly important priority for mining companies in order for them to finance new technologies to help transition to this you know lower carbon future and part of this is also to you know proving to investors you know government stakeholders their commitment to strive for more sustainable operations thanks for those insights vanessa one of the points you made was regarding increased scrutiny pertaining to this sector so nishant what do you think are the key aspects of this that corporates and banks in the sector need to consider thanks aditi for that and i think just to add to what nick and vanessa have said of course, it's very important for a company to understand how they're planning to allocate their funds and the way in which they want to structure their financing framework. So uh, stating the obvious here, but it's very critical to understand which are the most material issues in the sector. Under environment, the key ones will be GHA emissions, air quality, water and waste management. And under social, it would be probably human rights and occupational health and safety. Now, if you take the case of addressing GHA emissions as a whole, some of the most impactful areas that can be looked at from a financing perspective, especially looking at a user proceeds uh, structure, would be electrification, fuel switching, and renewable energy. These three would be, let's say, the top three to be addressed here. When we talk about electrification, we're talking about electrification of mining equipment, such as haul trucks, loaders, forklifts, excavators, etc. Uh, for fuel switching is to low-carbon fuels. For mining equipment, again, using fuels like hydrogen and fuel cells, LNG possibly, biomass as well. And talking about renewable energy sources, that's the generation of electricity on-site, uh, whether that's hydropower, geothermal, solar or wind, uh, or even direct procurement of RE. So these would be, let's say, the top three to look at from a user proceeds perspective. Now, if you talk about linked instruments, uh, sticking to our example of addressing GHG emissions, it's important to understand the split between scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Uh, for the sector, if you look at scope one and two emissions as a whole, uh, roughly 40 to 50% of CO2 emissions typically would be from diesel used in movable equipments like your uh, mining vehicles. And another 30 to 35% is from the non-renewable energy sources. Now looking at scope three, which generally accounts for the highest proportion of a mining company's carbon footprint. Now, this could be as high as 95% sometimes. And the key areas under uh, scope 3 to be addressed would be category 10, which is processing of sole products, and then category 11, use of sole products. So I would say yeah, these are some of the pointers for the companies and banks to be looking at. Thanks for sharing that, Nishant. Now I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here and ask, in your opinion, which is a better structure? Is a link structure better or is a use of proceeds structure better? Or which one do we expect to see more of? Keen to hear your thoughts. That's a very good question and not just for the metals and mining sector, but for most of them. I think the primary reason or the way in which companies want to structure this is to really see where those funds are going to be deployed. Now, I would say 
if there are any specific eligible assets that are available, there have been specific activities planned at respective mines, specific interventions that are going to be dedicated for those mines, then a user proceeds structure may be better. But if a company is looking to add a more broader picture to reduce their overall environmental impact, they made their decarbonization commitments publicly. And the idea of securing funds is to address a bunch of initiatives in that one goal. Then, you know, looking at a time frame of 2030, 2035, probably a link structure would be better, in my opinion, on that regard. But again, broadly speaking, it boils down to the very specific company's uh, journey on the decarbonization pathway. The more mature ones who have a handle on their data have more solid plans to address scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. I think for them, more and more, we're seeing mining companies looking to structure it around the linked instruments. I was just going to jump in there. Maybe we should do a podcast in 12 months' time and do a bit of a self-bet as to which ones may show greater impact overall in the market, regardless of instruments. So we might revisit that question in 12 months in our normal... Now, Vanessa, coming back to you and talking about transition for sectors that have been traditionally excluded from the green market, but do have a key role to play in addressing climate change. Now, why would Sustainalytics seek to apply the Climate Transition Finance Handbook Assessment to these sectors? Can you share your thoughts? So to give our listeners a bit more context on what the Climate Transition Finance Handbook Assessment is. So the Climate uh, Transition Finance Handbook was first introduced by ICMA in 2020, which acts as an additional guidance for issuers seeking to utilize you know, labeled bonds like your green bonds, um, social bonds or sustainability bonds or linked bonds as part of their climate transition strategy. So the handbook highlights the importance of the issuer's overall climate transition strategy, um, which involves assessing four of the recommendations outlined in the handbook. So the first pillar is the issuer's um, climate transition strategy and governance. Um, The second pillar is business model environmental materiality. The third is climate transition strategy to be science-based, including targets and pathways. And the fourth, the last element is implementation transparency. So for issuers that have substantial involvement in carbon-intensive activities, like um, those in the mining sector, it is recommended that you know they apply the CTFH assessment in their transactional level or framework second party opinions. So in addition to the disclosure on each of the pillars of the relevant principles, that is the use of proceeds, management of proceeds, project selection and reporting, the CTFH assessment would help to round out the second party opinion itself and as a way for issuers to really credibly articulate to investors and their stakeholders how the identified bond user proceeds or the KPIs and targets would fit into the issuer's overall transition strategy. We also see that you know investors are demanding more, demanding for greater transparency on the disclosures to be made available in the capital markets as a whole. We've definitely seen an uptake of companies applying this assessment in their SPO. As Sustainalytics, we also offer this assessment on a standalone basis. So for companies that want you know an external reviewer like us to highlight their transition strategy more broadly to their investors and for marketing purposes. We also definitely see this as a really good way for issuers to 
perhaps signpost any future plans that they have in furthering and improving their transition strategy. Thanks, Vanessa. That provides a good segue to my next question that I'm going to ask Nishant, which is about the competitive landscape. Nishant, how does Sustainalytics differ to some of the other players in this market? Thanks. Thanks for that question, Aditi. And uh, I'll just talk more about how we look at uh, the metals and mining sector from our assessment perspective. And this is also different compared to the other sectors that we assess and the transactions that we look at, given the complexities associated with the metals and mining sector. So while looking at the user proceeds, I think the mainstay, of course, is to look at whether they qualify as eligible or not. But for this, we use a three-led lens approach, typically for this sector. I'll take you through the three levels approach that we use. The first one is at the activity level. That's really to understand the individual activities and how they would qualify with respect to our internal taxonomy guidelines. The expenditure may be classified as either green or transition, which depends on the nature and impact of that activity. The second lens that we use for our assessment is at the mine level. And we believe that even you know beyond the activity, certain criteria need to be met at the mine site level in order for the particular transaction to be more credible. At the mine level, we look at the do no significant harm criteria where typically we're looking at environmental and social impact assessments, whether they have been conducted and the mine should have a closure and rehabilitation plan as well in place. The second point that we look for within at the mine level is making sure that there are no major unaddressed controversies, especially associated with that particular mining site on the environmental and social front. So that's the second lens. The third one is at the company or at the issuer level, where we have to understand if there are any significant controversies have they addressed risk mitigation to a large extent of the overall strategy? I think that those are the three-layered lens approach that we use. In terms of the no-goes or ineligible activities for us, typically coal mining, diamond mining, or mining of nuclear elements like uranium and thorium, etc., those would be not uh, eligible for us. And uh, also expenditures related to mine closure and reclamation are not considered. So that's on the uh, use of proceeds front. I can jump into the next part on on linked, how we use that lens for our assessment. In all our SPOs for linked, whether it's SLPs or SLLs, we rate the strength of the KPIs on one to four levels, whether they are not aligned, adequate, strong, and very strong. And for the corresponding KPIs, we have the target levels as well, unclassified under ambition, whether they are not aligned, moderately ambitious, ambitious, and highly ambitious. Now, for the KPIs that are, let's say, environmental and science-based, we use uh, various science-based trajectories out there. Uh, some, and these are from some of the most credible organizations like your IEA, your science-based targets, TPI, ACD, etc. When we talk about the metals and mining uh, sector uh, in particular, for GHG emissions, companies are either looking to reduce it in terms of absolute percentage or they have physical intensity numbers that they're looking in mind for scope one and scope two emissions. Now, for this particular trajectory, we look at the IEA's three decarbonization trajectories for the mining sector. And the market reference is to equate it in terms of ton CO2 equivalent per ton copper equivalent. So basically, that means total GHG emissions divided by tons of production on an equity basis and expressed in copper equivalent terms. 
the copper equivalent term is generally used to normalize various physical quantities across different commodities. And for scope three, I think we have seen examples of direct reduction in terms of percentage of GHG emissions and also a few examples where tons you to equivalent per million euros in terms of or dollars in terms of revenues can be looked at. As you many of you may already know, ICMA has come up with uh, an indicative registry of KPIs. So that's, again, a very good uh, starting point for companies and banks to consider for the transactions across the metal and mining sector. So that's also a good one to check out. Thanks, Nishan. That's a useful summary on the KPIs. Vanessa, what are the benefits for corporates in terms of labeling transactions in this sector? Yeah, so as mentioned earlier, so the mining sector is obviously a very common incentive sector, but it also has a critical role to play in, you know, transitioning to lower carbon, you know, technologies. And companies in the sector are definitely in a good position when it comes to sustainability labeled debt instruments, like what Nina Nishan alluded earlier, green loans or bonds, or sustainability linked bonds or loans. So by issuing or borrowing these labeled debt instruments, companies, you know, first of all, in the sector would be able to attract capital from various, you know, investors, including the government or the private sector, especially when more and more investors are recognizing the critical role that the mining plays in in enabling that transition to cleaner energy technologies. So in the context of sustainability-linked loans or bonds, it definitely also provides companies with an external commitment mechanism whereby they would have to deliver on the set of predetermined KPIs and sustainability performance targets and potentially even risking financial penalties if the company fails to achieve them. So this incentive structure can provide some sort of reassurance to external stakeholders of the company's commitment to sustainability and to demonstrate leadership to their employees the importance the company is placing on improving its sustainability performance. Like what you know, Nishant mentioned earlier, so with the use of green social or transition bond or loan proceeds, companies can make a range of environmental and social improvements in their operations as well. So for instance, the implementation or procurement of renewable energy or electrification of processes like trucks and loaders. So in terms of social use of proceeds, examples would be, you know, to say, ensuring the health and occupational safety of the miners or employees. So of course, unlike uh, green bonds or other labeled bonds and loans that mandate the use of proceeds to specific eligible green or social projects, companies have the flexibility to apply the proceeds from their sustainability link financing to general corporate purposes. So I guess these three main benefits for corporates in the sector in terms of transacting these label instruments as well. Aditi, I might just round off a couple of other thoughts specifically connected to that because it's something that often comes up in our monthly kind of podcast as well. And I think particularly for the mining sector, to add to what um, Vanessa has said, I think an aspect of the harder to abate or challenging sectors is maintaining that access to capital as well. So I think there's pricing benefits on some of these instruments and depends on market conditions. I think there's a real benefit in diversifying banks, diversifying investors, but also maintaining that access to capital through everything that Vanessa's just told us about engaging with investors, engaging with banks, communicating to the market what somebody is actually doing. I think those things are really important to bear in mind because it's not just a pricing, it's not just a diversification, it's engagement, it's communication, it's it's that access to capital part which will be more, let's just say, debatable over time. 
Um, so I just wanted to jump in and add, round that one off a little bit more. That's great, Nick. And just to round off, are there any other considerations and challenges that banks and corporates must think through? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think it sort of picks up a number of things which we've kind of indirectly mentioned in throughout the podcast already. But I'd, I'd say a couple of things. I think often the challenge can be, what label do you do? Is a green format best representative through use of proceeds? Have you got the assets? If we're just talking about sustainable finance, right? The other thing is, you know, have you got ambitious targets? Have you got well-defined data? Have you got reporting mechanisms? So, you know, sustainable finance in these sectors is, is really beneficial as we've just gone through, but there's considerations to what format you would do what data you've got, what strategy you've got, what type of assets you've got, and what really speaks to the corporate. Because the most important thing is there's real integrity and resonance from a strategy point of view to the transaction to consider, particularly for these more challenging sectors. As we know, green use of proceeds transition is more about eligibility of the assets within the context of the strategy of a company. And then the KPIs and targets is really, really, really focused on how ambitious those are and making sure that the targets are tasking and looking at, you know, really important material areas. So I think how ready a company is in terms of their reporting, in terms of their disclosure, in terms of their data readiness, I think is super, super important. And what we often sort of say that cuts across all elements of sustainable finance is just making sure that something is not just sort of repackaging what we call, you know, business as usual. There's some real intent behind what projects are getting financed on the use of proceeds to see some environmental uplift. Or on the other side of the fence on that linked sort of side, it's not just, you know, measuring something that's that's in place and meeting a regulatory requirement. It's really trying to push a company. So these types of considerations obviously come into how best can a company structure those and work with their bank or banks or arrangers or consultants or otherwise to make sure that a transaction really reflects the strategic intent of the company. It's not just transaction specific, it's it's much broader. So those are some things. The other thing just to mention as well is, and I think Nishant sort of touched upon this or Vanessa before, was just the, you know, controversies are often what we say, a, you know, an environment controversy, social or governance controversy connected to some difficult um, situations in the sector. So it's always important to consider those, to mention those, to look at how a company can improve those and what they've done as they're working with their banks and, and issuing bonds. You want to be able to address all those things very clearly because, as we know, investors and banks are looking at the whole picture of a company, not just a tiny element. Use of proceeds, KPIs and ambition, really important, but in the broader context of the company, have they or do they have controversies which can be more prevalent in this sector and how have they been addressed? So that's a whole mouthful for our uh, for our listeners to sort of round off that segment, but I'd say those are sort of considerations and challenges worth thinking through, particularly for, for some challenging sectors like this. Thanks, Nick. Next, let's move on to interaction with banks. Now, Vanessa, since you cover banks in ASEAN, let me start with you. How can a bank specifically use Sustainalytics service in this regard? Well, I'd say there are lots of ways for banks to engage with us. So apart from the Climate Transition Finance Handbook that I mentioned earlier, there are other ways that the banks can definitely uh, reach out to us as well. So an obvious example would be our second party opinion solutions uh, for both use of proceeds and linked debt instruments like Nick and Nishan also mentioned earlier. So for our listeners who are not familiar with um, second party opinions or in short SPOs, um, they are essentially independent 
independent opinions that we provide on the issuers or borrowers green social or sustainability link framework or bond framework where and it aims to provide investors with some sort of assurance that the transaction level framework is credible impactful and aligns with market principles um, like the ICMA principles or the APLMA principles and the ASEAN standards and that the use of proceeds of the loan or bond um, as set out in the framework are aligned with market practices and expectations from the investment community. We have also worked with various issuers across different sectors where you know, banks and underwriters have also engaged with us on, on our SPO solution. So before formally engaging with us on a full SPO report, banks, issuers and borrowers can also go through a KPI SPT assessment with us for linked transactions or a user proceeds assessment with us for user proceeds transactions. So our KPI and SVT assessment, which was launched earlier this year, looks to support borrowers and issuers that would like to have an indicative assessment from us on the strength of the KPIs and the ambitiousness of the proposed SPTs. So the deliverable itself is a document that can only be used internally or bilaterally with lenders. And the benefit of this you know, review is, is really you know, not only that the borrower or issuer or the lenders can obtain our view on the list of the proposed targets, they can also consider which ones would work better for the transaction as well. So this stage approach also works really well in syndication deals where there are many lenders in the transaction and, and lenders within that transaction can use this you know, for their credit application or rely on this assessment uh, report on signing, which takes some time pressure off the transaction. The same applies to use of proceed assessment where the borrower or the issuer or lenders could obtain a preliminary view on the proposed use of proceeds and decides which ones work you know, better for the transaction before engaging with us you know, on a full SPO report. And I think, you know, Nick also mentioned earlier that what has been quite popular for sustainability linked loan transactions is that companies are linking their ESG risk rating score as, as one of their KPIs in their SLLs. Banks can also use our ESG risk rating as a way to engage with their customers, you know, start a conversation to help them to really improve their sustainability performance. So companies who, you know, subscribe an ESG risk rating license with us will also receive a very comprehensive and detailed ESG risk rating report, which also provides a breakdown of the list of material ESG issues that you know, the companies in the sector should focus on. So I would say, you know, various things that banks and the region can engage with us, you know, if they want to have, you know, start a conversation with clients in the mining sector. Thanks, Vanessa. Nishant, you keep interacting with banks across APAC regularly. Can you share what type of conversations are we having with banks for sustainable finance for the metals, commodities and mining sector? Thanks, Aditi. And uh, definitely the conversations around metal and mining have picked up a lot in the last six months. I would say a host of questions really that have come across, but then I'll share the major ones on which we've had conversations with the banks. Uh, the first one I think would be, can we classify the entire process of mining a critical mineral or metal? For example, uh, copper or nickel or lithium, can we classify that entire thing as eligible? From our perspective as Sustainalytics, the answer is we would use the same three-lens approach assessment. So we cannot typically classify an entire mine as green or the entire process as green. It's really about seeing those interventions happening across uh, and defining what would be the typical use of proceeds within that process. So that, I would say, is one of the questions we have seen. A second one on, does mining typically fall under as a hard-to-abate sector? 
So we at Sustainalytics recognize that mining activities are generally highly energy and carbon intensive, but inherently mining would not fall under a hard to abate sector per se under the definition. This is because unlike activities like cement production and aviation, mining does not face any challenges or barriers to decarbonization you know, that is inherent to the nature of the technologies or processes that are being employed. So that's the second, I would say, question that we've seen. Third one probably to look at is, you know, in terms of the assessment that we do on a particular mining company, uh, apart from looking at the actual user proceeds or KPIs, what are the, some of the other elements or considerations that we look at on the company to understand more on, uh, you know, how credible their transition journey will be? So I think typically for, for that, for that we typically address that in our second section of the second party opinion. We believe that given the large environmental and social uh, risks associated with mining, it's important for the investors to understand the policies and management systems an issuer has in place to address these risks. There would be an assessment on material issues like waste management, occupational health and safety, human rights, bribery and corruption, if not already addressed through specific uh, user proceeds or KPIs. Say also it's very important to understand the company's decarbonization strategy and targets. Again, what Vanessa had spoken about earlier on the ICMA's Climate Transition Finance Handbook, we have done that as an assessment as well in Section 2 of our SPO. For the sector specifically um, as well, it's important to add that uh, the metals that are being mined and their usefulness what role they play in the transition to a lower economy. There will be some commentary on that as well in the second party opinion and whether there are certain minerals that may be impactful, but then their primary use in, let's say, luxury products. So more of that uh, nuances will be there as part of the uh, second party opinion that we have on the sector. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Nick, coming back to you, how are banks thinking of the key aspects of sustainable finance for these sectors? And how are they looking to work with external parties like Sustainalytics, which provide opinions and supporting services in this area? Yeah, look, I think there's a there's a few different aspects to answer that question, but I'll try not to talk for too long or, or too in-depth. I think the first thing is we've sort of touched upon as a, as a key theme throughout the podcast thus far. It's, first of all, it's the commodity group. So we're talking about coal, very difficult, pretty much a non-starter. We're talking about titanium or lithium or something like that, which is really, really important and is it going to be a key feature of us getting to, to net zero. So that's always the sort of anchor to this. As Nishant and others have mentioned before, I think banks are, you know, and we take a, let's just say, a traditional approach in terms of use of proceeds when we're looking at those type of um, type of instruments in terms of renewables, electrification, waste management, social elements, water, biodiversity, adaptation. Those are the key things that banks are, are sort of looking at and um, how well is a, is a mining company doing on those. But I think it always starts in commodity group. Then I think a number of banks are looking at, well, if we're just producing titanium or some other specific type of metal, does that production facility in totality can be used as a use of proceeds. We'd say not really. You need to apply renewables to that process, and that's a use of proceeds. It's how you manage your waste, and that's a use of proceeds. So I think it's a pretty general answer I'm giving you, but some of the key aspects for this sector is really you've got to look at what commodity as the anchor premise, what commodity you're looking at, how needed is that in the transition to net zero or when we get to net zero, 
Is a bank looking to structure normal types of use of proceeds or traditional types of use of proceeds? And one of the other things that I kind of forgot to mention before was when we look at mining, it's a very diversified sector. So it's very rare that you'll find one company doing one thing. There's a lot of mining companies that do a whole range of commodities. So how you best um, pick up elements of that? Have you got a mine producing multiple commodities? Uh, are all of those needed? So it, it's a very diversified sector. And it depends on geography, what type of mining you're doing in Australia versus South America. So complicated sector, um, very diverse sector, but always looking at what commodity you're you're focusing on in terms of the, the company financing, I think is really important. And then the other thing in terms of a lot of companies reaching out to an external provider, such as a Sustainalytics, kind of looking at more the link side of things. There's a lot of discussions with the banks, with companies in the sector about, you know, what are the best types of KPIs that, that show and represent ambition? And we're starting to see, you know, scope three elements, which are really important. We're starting to see banks consider supply chain types of initiatives and financing for mining companies because supply chain is really important for many companies. We're also seeing some banks work through, and it's a difficult area for everyone, the whole issue of biodiversity and social. So again, social, very much local context. Many mining companies are global, regional. What's the local context for certain um, social projects and programs and communities and then back to that point I mentioned before about biodiversity, um, how you best reflect that in some of the linked instruments. So there's a whole range of aspects specific to the sector, which banks and arrangers um, are thinking through, and that sort of impacts our work. And, you know, that's the role of an external provider is to work through with a bank and with a company to, to work out what are eligible if you're talking about use of proceeds, and what's a good level of relevance, materiality for KPIs, and then ambition for the for the target side of things. So, a bit of a hodgepodge answer there for you, Aditi. But but hopefully that sort of rounds out that segment a bit more on those broader types of considerations from an industry's perspective, because it's very unique. It's a very unique industry and a very dynamic industry and a very global industry. Thanks, Nick. Nishant, what are some of the trends we are seeing? Or rather, what are we seeing globally in terms of the actual transactions that have been done? Thanks, Aditi, for that. I think just starting off with some of the trends first that we've seen on in the metals and mining sector, we all know the sector is here to stay. We know, uh, you know, the rise for critical minerals and metals is only going to go up. The IES said roughly by four times by 2040, especially seeing a high growth for EV-related materials. Interestingly for the sector, when we talk about some of the risks and challenges that are being faced, ESG and climate change feature in the top three. The companies or the miners are trying to prioritize water stewardship, biodiversity, the same points typically Nick mentioned before, looking at diversity, equity and inclusion as well. More and more companies are now communicating their long-term strategy very clearly with their stakeholders, making it as robust as possible, possibly to avoid any greenwashing concerns or uh, uh, acquisitions in the future. I think under climate change, when we talk about uh, net zero pathways, companies are looking to progress towards them ambitiously, but it's really the key strategy that they're working on. Now, coming to specific, let's say, actual transactions that we've seen overall globally and some of them in the APAC region, it's been a mixed bag of user proceeds as well as link. Talking about some of the notable deals, uh, I would say Newmont Corp, they're 
world's leading gold company. They did an SLB focusing on scope one, two, and three emissions, increasing the percentage of women in senior leadership roles. I think then we have seen Fortescue, one of the largest iron ore producers worldwide. They did a green and social bond. The green user proceeds were typically focusing on renewable energy, green hydrogen, energy efficiency, clean transportation. And then I think uh, on social, they had user proceeds around employment generation and socioeconomic advancement. We also have seen Anglo-American recently do an SLB as well, focusing on scope one and two emissions. And they also had a KPI on addressing the amount of fresh water used in water scarce regions. And uh, the third one talking about number of jobs created or generated off-site for every job generated on-site. So some other deals that we've seen in the market typically include Pensana. They did a green bond for funding capex and construction costs for their refinery. We've also seen Emeris, a French company that did an SLB with the KPI addressing scope one and two emissions in terms of revenue intensity. There have been a few loans as well in the market. South 32, based in Australia, did an SLL focusing on emissions, water and electricity. Then I think we had Sandstorm Gold that did an SLL based on external ratings, alignment with ESG standards and uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. I think more or less, uh, we can see more and more link deals growing in the sector. And I feel this would only continue to grow into the future. And I think addressing emissions, of course, is going to continue to be the mainstay of the focus area for both uh, sets of instruments as well. And coming back to you, Vanessa, what are we expecting to see in terms of further developments or in terms of what has already been done in the markets thus far? Yeah, thanks, Aditi. So I think one of the key messages from this podcast so far is that, you know, the mining sector is key to energy transition and perhaps, you know, more transition labeled um, um, transactions will come through from the sector in the future. We will also probably see more social related KPIs or user proceeds coming up from the sector. Just transition was a widely discussed topic at COP26 last year, which highlighted the fact that you know there will be more expectations and scrutiny on mining companies and particularly their impact on, on local communities in terms of human rights, indigenous concerns, those of jobs and other um, economic opportunities. So it's an interesting article that I read. So according to the UN, a poorly planned mine closure is likely to have a significant impact on women and girls in terms of reduced access to healthcare and also the exacerbation of inequality in the workforce, um, demographics and wages. So as different stakeholders, including consumers, investors, are requiring more companies to source and mine you know, minerals more sustainably, companies in the mining sector are expected to you know, address not just the environmental impact of, of their operations, but also social so we would expect you know, more mining companies to include um, social related KPIs or use of proceeds in their label transactions. Besides social related targets or user proceeds, perhaps another development that we would see is more transactions setting KPIs and targets on biodiversity. Just as companies are required to report on climate change related risks, investors and stakeholders are demanding that they also consider reporting on biodiversity risks from the exploration and operation of mine sites, for example. So similar to TCFD, companies, particularly from the hard to bait sectors, 
would be expected to report in line with TNFD, which stands for Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, and look to really consider reporting and acting on nature-related risks. So um, some examples of biodiversity theme targets would be related to, for example, habitat loss and degradation, over-exploitation of biological resources, uh, wildlife species, diversity, etc. So yeah, perhaps more transition uh, label tra- uh, transactions coming through from the market and perhaps the focus more on social and biodiversity related targets and, and user proceeds. Thanks for your views. And finally, Nick, anything in your crystal ball in terms of other areas such as sustainable supply chain or other more dynamic structures that we might see going forward? Crystal balls getting a bit overused at the moment, so I'm not sure I can see much left in there. So I'd probably answer that in terms of two ways. The first way is I think we're going to see some different structures and products. And then the second thing is I think we're going to see some more specific thematics called out. So Vanessa just mentioned a bunch of these specifically transition-labeled instruments I think we're going to see. Sustainable supply chain, looking at supply chains, value chains right through on the buy side and the sell side for a corporate or the sourcing side and the selling side. I think we're going to see a lot more structured connected to those and things like scope three. It'll be interesting to see how much more gets included around collaboration because some of these are cross-sector initiatives or cross-company initiatives. So yeah, lots of interesting things. Maybe um, some more on the trade finance side too in terms of guarantees and some of the contingent type of facilities as well. We see all the types of financings that mining companies have an element of sustainability embedded or green embedded into, into that. The second point I'd say is I think in terms of thematics, we'll probably see a number of the things that Vanessa called out, but possibly in addition to some of the ones that we easily overlook like water. So water footprint. In some mining businesses, water is a more critical issue than than actually emissions. So, you know, biodiversity, water, some of these things I think are going to be incredibly important. And as we develop more science, more understanding about them, and there's more market references, frameworks, and we can work out what good looks like, then that is a really good way to then benchmark ambition and we'll see transactions connected to those type of things. But definitely supply chain, value chains, looking at suppliers and buyers and that whole holistic picture, it's going to be a pretty interesting area to see the market developing for sure. Absolutely. So moving on to impact, which is picking up and gaining traction with clients. Vanessa, can you share with our listeners, why did Sustainalytics develop impact reporting capability and how does this link to this sector? Yeah, so Aditi, you mentioned it earlier, um, has been, you know, quite a lot. We have seen quite a lot of requests coming through on impact. So the word impact has been, you know, definitely a buzzword in the ESG space. So Sustainalytics, we have, you know, recently launched our Green Bond Impact Reporting Solution early this year in response to the growing demand and interest from investors who are interested to know and understand what the impact of the Green Bond that was issued. So with our Green Bond Impact Team Reporting Solution, uh, we look to do most of the heavy lifting for issuers or even borrowers for Green Loan Impact Report and crunch the estimated environmental impact achieved by the underlying projects of a bond or a loan in terms of carbon emissions avoided. So research actually showed that investors are not just looking at what are being financed by the bond or the loan, but what is the actual impact of the projects that were being financed. So just to lay out some stats. So according to the Green Bond Fund's impact reporting practices conducted by the environmental finance, around 90% of the investors um, regard 
impact reporting as important and crucial. Around 72% already issued an impact report as well. So we really do see this as the next frontier in sustainable finance where issuers or borrowers will be you know, expected to crunch the impacts of, of the bonds or the loans that they have issued or originated. But some of the main challenges that investors face when dealing with you know, impact reporting um, are the lack of data from issuers, inconsistent baseline and benchmark methodology. And as stated in the report, actually 75% said that you know, the current impact reporting practices are inadequate. And more than half of them you know, did mention that the poor data and impact reporting deferred them from making any few further investments. So we acknowledge these gaps and that's why we have developed this solution to fill in these gaps that, that exist in the market. And we see this as a really good uh, reporting practice, which helps to add you know, credibility to the issuance and meet investor expectations. So another interesting report on ESG reporting requirements by the UNPRI also highlighted the growing demand for transparency on a company's reporting practices. So one of the key findings highlighted in the report, which I find it quite interesting, is that there has been a move from a tell me approach to a show me reporting approach, where companies were required to report only on their policies on ESG you know, issues, but now there are moves to reducing greenwashing and investors are now expecting more disclosure from companies as to where their monies are being invested and how these investment decisions are being made. So we see this impact reporting solution you know, would help companies who do not have you know, the technical expertise to crunch and, and quantify their data. And that, that's where our expertise you know, comes in. So at Sustainalytics, we would also be able to crunch the impact matrix on a corporate level where we would look to quantify um, the impact of a company's business activities in terms of job employment generation and GDP contributions, and also map the matrix to the UN SDGs as a way to contextualize uh, which sustainability goals the companies have addressed. So by looking at the company's business activities, main country of operations, we would be able to you know, help the company to identify which material ESG issues that they should be reporting on based on external references like the GIN um, RS Plus, which stands for the Global Impact Investing Network, which is what we also call it the taxonomy of, of impact. So just to give um, our listeners some examples of impact reports that we have worked on. So we worked with Toyota Leasing Thailand on a green loan impact report where we calculated the estimated impact achieved by the green loans. We also worked with another Thailand name called PTSG, Bangkok Mass Transit System, on their green bond impact report as well. For the corporate impact report, we worked with Ozia and an internet of things IoT company based in the States. We also help them to report on matrix like uh, employment or job sustained through their operations and the reductions in electronic and battery waste as a result of using their technology, etc. So impact is definitely the, the new buzzword in the ESG sustainable finance space, and we think that it will be the next frontier as well. Thanks, Vanessa. Nishant, how would you say impact reporting applies to the metals and mining sector in particular? Thanks, uh, thanks, Aditi. And I think Vanessa has emphasized pretty much uh, everything under impact reporting. But uh, I think just a couple of points from my side. We know that the focus on metal and mining sector is growing. The global reporting initiatives or GRI has developed, is rather developing a new sector reporting standard on mining. The sector guidance will focus a lot on the wide range of impacts that can be looked at, whether it's the intensive water use systems, ecosystems disruption, air and soil pollution, 
these in turn having large and significant consequences on the local communities that is going to be the main theme under this and in terms of what we do at sustainalytics like vanessa mentioned we can definitely crunch the impact metrics for the metal and mining companies based on their requirements at the corporate level or at the bond or loan level typically these metrics are divided into three categories whether that's environmental contribution social contribution and economic contribution under environmental contribution typically talking about carbon avoidance from projects or investments under social there could be metrics uh, considered around percentage females or minority in the workforce percentage females minority in the management or leadership number of training hours spent on the employees and technical training delivered products or services offered in remote or rural areas how many local individuals have been employed by the company how are the suppliers and vendors being identified and how many women representations are there in those suppliers and vendors so really a bunch of things that can be addressed from a social contribution point of view and under economic contribution when we talk about of course gdp number of jobs sustained as well as investments in csr activities also probably it could look at spent on local business spent on local community development programs as well so these would typically be the flavors around which we can look at from a metrics perspective on the three pillars thanks nishant then hopefully we'll see more diverse issuers report on impact across the region Nick, just to round off the discussion on impact with you, do we see an increased demand for impact reporting and quantification for supply chains for corporates, especially in hard-to-abate sectors such as mining? I think the short answer is yes, and I'll give a relatively short answer to that question. I think it's more indicative of the challenge sectors from a social perspective, from an environmental perspective, and mining certainly in the heart of one of those challenge. sector. So everything that that Nishant and Vanessa have just sort of mentioned will be more intensified in sectors like mining as investors, banks, stakeholders want to understand the holistic picture and all of the picture. I think there's a couple of dimensions to this in that there will be more scrutiny on these sectors and it's really important to show both the risks and the opportunities. And and many corporates have a huge influence through their supply chain and there's risks there which you can't see. there's opportunities for improvement and influence in using a position of the buyer or the, the key corporate to work with companies in their supply chain. So I'll I'll leave my sort of answer at that but the short answer is absolutely yes for all of the reasons that Vanessa and Nishant put out and then the broader context is really about visibility and is about sector scrutiny and is about showing that full picture both from a risk perspective and from an opportunity and where improvements can be made so lots we'll see across the broader market for that for sure thanks nick and that brings us to our final segment regarding market outlook that i'm going to ask all of you so nick what is your outlook on the future developments that we can expect to see for sustainable finance for the metals commodities and mining sector yeah it's a great question and and a place to sort of round off the discussion today and and i could probably spend an hour working through all of that but i don't want to say too much that will take away from the shan and vanessa as we sort of look to round everything off but i think you know in essence mining's an incredibly important sector a lot of the products that come out of the mining sector are critical for transition but there's that 4 to 8% or more uh, that contributes to global um, ghg so i think the outlook is greater participation across sustainable finance whether that's transition labeled use of proceeds use of proceeds green use of proceeds social or linked instruments i just think we're going to see greater participation from more geographies from more elements 
and different styles of companies across the sector. We're going to see a whole range of, let's just call them thematics, emphasized further as things like biodiversity, there's more frameworks and reference points. As things like water get understood further. As things like scope three are managed and measurable or more easily um, measured. So I think we're just going to see greater participation across the board. And those other things we talked about too, the demand for ESG ratings, the demand for impact reporting and benchmarking and supply chain assessments, we're going to see huge demand from these challenge sectors, including mining, for sure. So I'll keep my comments just centred on that one point. The other thing just to sort of broaden out very briefly is that obviously the markets are going through a a bit of a rough period at the moment and the intent of the podcast is to not get into too much crystal balling in terms of how many bonds will be issued and when but there's no doubt that the bond market for sustainable bonds and loans and connected is influenced by the broader market which is going through a, a period of of stress and volatility so i think you know in the shorter term we'll probably see more action in the loans market than the bond market but we hope the bond market can come back pretty pretty strong in coming quarters so just to to sort of temper some of the things we've talked about today, certainly a lot more participation, a lot more growth, but it's in the context of a, of a bit of a constrained market for bonds at the moment. But as we've talked about right throughout the podcast today, this is a much bigger issue than just a bond market. It's about strategy and it's about different types of thematics that mining companies are working through and sustainable finances is one way they can demonstrate and um, communicate those. So that would be part of what's in my crystal ball for uh, for a bit of on the outlook there. Thanks, Nick. Nishant, what about your views on the market outlook? Yeah, I think Nick has summarized everything quite comprehensively. And I, I'm, I'm sure the number of companies going for issuances on linked or user proceeds for the sector, it's only going to go up. Having a robust strategy and communicating that effectively to stakeholders is going to be the key. What would be the approach to decarbonization and being very transparent about that? Tackling scope three emissions, as we know, will be the crucial area where companies focus their efforts and uh, money on. Collaborations and partnerships, of course, as well through various stakeholders will be the key. I think those are some of the main points from my side. Thanks, Nishant. And finally, Vanessa, anything to add to what Nick and Nishant have already mentioned? Yes, I think uh, Nick and Nishan encapsulated, you know, most of the main ideas and thoughts. So I think mining sector is one of the oldest industries. It is here to stay. And as I mentioned earlier, if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. So perhaps, you know, more participation and, and collaborations, you know, within sector and across sectors to, to, to enable that transition. So I think that will be something, you know, to look out for in the future. Impact. So I think as Nick also mentioned, so we'll probably see more top-down regulations and disclosure requirements for the mining sector. So I think impact reporting will definitely be, you know, next frontier for sustainable finance where, you know, companies not just, you know, within the mining sector. Thanks, Vanessa. All right, folks, that's about all the time we have for today's episode. We hope you all enjoyed this special episode. Do also follow us on our LinkedIn and Twitter handle at the rate Sustainalytics and send any questions or feedback our way. Thanks again for tuning in. Till next time.